Chapter 16 Ready for Action Half swooning, I sat down upon a bench. My brain, however, began to work again at once. And Gulimala had been there. Of that there could be no doubt. And the reason for his coming was only too clear to me. How many tales had I heard of his implacability and greed for vengeance? Moreover, I had had the misfortune to slay his best friend, and, from a time with the robbers, I knew well that friendship among them does not count for less than among highly respectable citizens, indeed, if anything, for much more. At the time when I was his prisoner, Angulimala couldn't kill me without contravening the laws of the senders, and at the same time putting an indelible blot upon his robber honour. Yet he nevertheless all but did it twice over. Now, however, he had at last been able to seek out this land, in spite of its lying so far from the scene of his favoured activities, and evidently he intended to make up for that past omission. In the disguise of an ascetic he had succeeded in leisurely surveying the places of the neighbourhood, and, without doubt, had resolved to act that same night. Even if he had by chance perceived that I recognised him, he dared not delay, for this was the last night of the dark half of the month, and to carry out such an enterprise in the light half would have been an offence against the sacred laws of the robbers, and would have brought down upon him the vengeance of the wrathful goddess Kali. I at once ordered my best horse to be saddled, and rode into town to the palace of the king. I could easily have obtained an audience, but, to my disappointment, I learned that he was just then residing at one of his distant hunting lodges. I was therefore obliged to be content with a visit to the minister of state. As it happened, this was the very same man who had conducted the fateful embassy to Kosumbi, and in whose protection, as you will remember, I did not travel back. Now, from that day on which I had refused to follow him, he had not been very friendly to me, as I had noticed on several occasions when we had chanced to meet. In addition to which, I knew he had frequently criticised my mode of life. To have to bring this matter before him was not exactly agreeable. Its justification, however, was so apparent that here, it seemed, there was no room left for personal likes or dislikes. I related to him, therefore, as shortly and as clearly as possible, what had taken place in my courtyard, and added, the all but self-evident petition, that a division of troops must be stationed for the night at my house and garden, for the double purpose of defending my property from the certain attack of the robbers, and of capturing as many of these as possible. The minister heard me in silence, and with an inscrutable smile upon his face he said, My good Carmenita, I do not know whether you have already indulged in an early and very heavy draught, or are still suffering from the effects of one of your famous nightly banquets which have become the talk of Eugenie, or indeed whether you may not have ruined your inner organs to such an extent by your no less proverbial than remarkable spiced dishes as to now be subject to nightmares, and not only by night, but also in broad daylight. For as such I am compelled to designate this interesting tale, particularly as we now know that it is a long time since Angulimala ceased to sojourn amongst the living. But that was a false rumour, as we now see, I called out impatiently. I by no means see it, he replied sharply. There can be no question in this instance of a false rumour. A short time after the affair, Satagira himself related to me in Kosumbi that Angulimala had died in the underground dungeons of the ministerial palace under torture, and I myself saw his head on one of the spikes over the eastern gate. I do not know whose head you saw there, I cried, but this I do know, that one hour ago I saw the head of Angulimala safe and sound on his shoulders, and that, far from meriting your mockery, I deserve that you, on the contrary, should thank me for giving you the opportunity 
Of killing a dead man and making a fool of myself? The minister interrupted me. Much obliged. Then I beg you at least to remember that this is not a matter which concerns just any place, but relates to a mansion and grounds reckoned amongst the wonders of Ujjaini and inspected by our gracious king himself with great admiration. He will not thank you if Angulimala reduces all these splendours of his capital to ashes. Oh, that troubles me very little, said the minister, laughing. Take my advice. Go home, calm yourself with a short sleep, and don't let the matter disturb you further. For the rest, the whole affair arises from this, that you plunged yourself into a romantic adventure that year in Kosambi, and, in your headstrong folly, flung my words to the winds rather than return with me. Had you listened then, Angulimala would never have made you prisoner, and you would not now be tormented by an empty and baseless fear. Moreover, your two-month-long life in the company of that robber pack did not improve your morals, as all of us here in Ujjaini have perceived. At this point, he launched into a few additional moral platitudes, and then he dismissed me. Even before I reached home, I was considering what was to be done, seeing that I was now thrown onto my own resources. Arriving there, I had all the movable treasures, costly carpets, inlaid tables and similar items, carried into the courtyard and loaded onto wagons in order to have them conveyed to a place of safety in the inner town. At the same time, I had weapons distributed amongst all my people, both wagons and weapons being forthcoming in abundance, owing to the fact that a caravan had been in the course of preparation. But I didn't let things rest there. My first measure was to send several trusted servants into the town in order, by the promise of a handsome reward, to enlist for the night courageous and capable fighting men. For any other person, this would have been a hazardous procedure, for how easily might such fellows, at the critical moment, make common cause with the assailants. But I relied upon certain female friends, who recommended to my servants only trustworthy rascals, that is, fellows who were capable of anything, but to whom their solemnly pledged word and fighting money, once accepted, was sacred. As I knew this riffraff and their curious customs, I was well aware of what I was doing. During these preparations, as I had no time myself to go to my wives, I sent a servant to each of them with instructions that they should hold themselves in readiness, Sita with her two daughters, Savitri with her little son, to move into the inner town to my father's home. I didn't let them know that it was only to be for one night, because I considered that, once they were there, they might as well stay for a week or longer, and I should meanwhile enjoy a little period of peace at home, supposing, of course, that I succeeded in beating off the attack. Just as little did I let them know the reason for this arrangement, because, at that time, I foolishly believed that one should never give reasons to women. Meantime, the work went on, and I was on the point of making a stirring speech to my armed servants, an old practice of mine when danger threatened on our caravan journeys, and which had always been attended with excellent results, when, with one accord, and as if by prearrangement, my two wives dashed out of separate doors into the courtyard, with an air of consternation on their faces and shouting loudly. Everyone looked round at them, and I was forced to interrupt my speech before it was well begun. Sita brought out our two daughters, Savitri, our little son, with her. No sooner had they reached me than they pointed to each other and cried simultaneously, So at last this awful woman has succeeded in turning your heart against me, so that you drive me forth and lay upon me, your faithful wife, the disgrace of being sent back to my father's house, with your innocent little daughters, with your poor little son. How long and bitterly, brother, have I regretted my greed and folly to have married myself to two women at the same time. To have drawn these two into a situation fraught with such potential for friction. How painful and joyless it was for all three of us. To speak nothing of the children, 
and the rest of the household who all had to endure our constant wranglings. How rarely I was to discover does such an arrangement bring anything but grief, for thus it was between us once again. The foaming rage that possessed them brought it to pass that neither perceived how the other accused her of the very same thing which she herself brought forward, and complained of the very same hard fate which she herself bewailed as her own, and that, without question, there must have been a mistake somewhere. Far from suspecting anything of the kind, they screamed and howled, tearing their hair and striking their breasts with their fists, berating me also for my faithlessness and favouritism, until at last, as if by way of relaxation, each began to pour out abuse upon her supposedly victorious rival, which in its coarseness far surpassed anything I'd ever heard, even in the company of women of the streets. Finally, I succeeded in making myself heard, and also in making clear to them that they had utterly misunderstood my message, that neither of them was to be sent home to her own parents, but to my father's house, and by no means as a punishment or any sign of my displeasure, but solely on account of their own and their children's safety. When, however, I saw that they at last fully understood this, I could no longer contain myself, but cried out, This is what you have created by your unbearable rudeness. You both need to learn to behave yourselves in a seemly fashion. This is what your shaveling monk has done for you. Who do you suppose that was? It was Angulimala, the robber, the horrible fiend, who slays people and hangs their fingers around his neck. He it is whom you have abused, he whom you have angered. It's a miracle that he didn't beat you to death with his arms bow. But it is we others, if any of us should fall into his hands, who will have to pay to the uttermost farthing. And who knows whether you yourselves will be safe from him, even at my father's house. When my wives fully comprehended the meaning of my words, they began to cry as if they already felt the knife at their throats and wanted to rush out of the gate with the children. I stopped them, however, and then carefully explained that for the present no danger was to be feared because Angulimala, as I well knew, would not attack us before midnight. Then I bade them go back into our dwelling and pack all the things together which they and the children would be likely to need during the time that the danger from robbers compelled them to remain in the town. This they then at once did. At the same time, I quite overlooked the possible effect of my words upon my people, and that, as I soon discovered, was anything but agreeable. For when they learned that it was a terrible Angulimala, long since believed to be dead, that had spied out my house, and would certainly attack it in the night, first one and then another slunk quietly away, until finally they threw down their arms by dozens, and declared that they would have nothing to do with such a devil, that no one could possibly ask it of them. Those who had been enlisted in the town, and of whom the first comers arrived just then, when they heard how things stood, also said that this was not what they had bargained for, and withdrew. Only about twenty of my own people, at their head the brave steward of my house, professed that they would not leave me but would defend the place to the last drop of their blood, for they could all see that I was determined not to sacrifice this splendid property in which my heart was wrapped up, but if need be, to perish with it. Several resolute fellows from the town, attracted almost more by the prospect of a hot fight than by the money, and who also did not fear the name of Angulimala, but talked themselves into the belief that, after they'd fought well and been taken prisoner, they would be enrolled in the band, several such desperate characters joined themselves to us, so I finally had command of about forty well-armed and brave men. Meanwhile, evening was almost upon us, and the wagon for my wives drove up. They came out, bringing the children with them, and all were by this time quieted down. But a fresh anxiety arose at once when they perceived that I was not going with them, that, on the contrary, I had not the slightest intention of leaving the house. They threw themselves on their knees, clutched at my clothes, 
and begged me as the tears streamed down to rescue myself with them. Husband, don't forsake us. Don't cast yourself into the jaws of death. I explained to them that, if I abandoned my post, our house would soon become a prey to flames and plundering hands, and my son would lose the chief part of his inheritance. While, on the other hand, if we held out bravely, then there was still a possibility of rescuing it, as no one could say whether or not Angulimala would attack in great force. Carmenita, Carmenita, they cried, please don't leave us. The terrible Angulimala will make away with you and will wear your fingers on his gory necklace. He will torture you to death in his fearful fury and the fault will be ours. Because of our curses and bad language, you, our beloved, must suffer on that, on that account. We will be punished in hell. I sought to comfort them as well as I might, and when they saw that I was not to be moved from my resolution, they were obliged to make the best of it and get into the wagon. Scarcely, however, had they taken their places when they began to hurl accusations at one another. It was you who began it. No, you called my attention to him as he stood there beside the gatepost. Yes, that you did. You pointed your finger at him right there. And you, you spat at him. Red spittle. Up to that time I hadn't chewed any beetle. I never do that in the morning. But you called him a tramp, a lazy beggar. And you a bald-pated monk. And so it went on. The creaking of the wheels as the oxen now began to pull drowned out their voices.